Three minutes, two minutes. Good evening. Didn't mean to scare you. That thing is loud. Yeah, way loud. It's nice to see all of you here. So we might as well get started. If we don't, Brother David will be down here on my neck. So if you'll take your hymnals and stand with me, please, and turn to page 778. Picked all old good ones for you tonight. Probably don't even need a book.
<laughs> hey, he's running. <laughs> Can you look at him? <laughs> of all times for y'all to sing quickly. <laughs> no, I was uh, checking on uh, a wreck that they had just a couple of blocks down. We are now in the season. People, please, please be patient, okay? Be patient and be very, very careful, okay? Let's bow our heads as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for, Lord, just your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for the service this morning, and we look forward to what you have for us tonight. Thank you, God, for the faithfulness on the part of your people. Lord, I thank you that uh, we can come before you at any time with any need, knowing, Father God, that we have your ear because, Father God, we have your heart. Now, Father God, may your spirit have free course and reign among your people tonight. Bless your word. Help us to praise you, to worship you. And Father, we'll thank you for all that you do, for we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. <coughs> well, believe it or not, next Sunday, Palm Sunday, and then after that, Resurrection Sunday. You have all of the information posted there in the bulletin. <coughs> do want to remind everyone that during the worship service next week, we will be coming to the Lord's table. It's always a special time for us here at Chapel by the Sea. But uh, I've been giving you this challenge now for some weeks. Please, please see who you can invite to come and be with you especially the next two Sundays. Uh, this is the time of the year where people are most willing to go to a church, and uh, many will be looking for a church to go to, and wouldn't it be nice if they came because you invited them? And so let me encourage you, whatever that person or whoever that person is that the Lord's laid upon your heart, Take advantage of it. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's uh, pause tonight. Do we have any words of praise? Any words of praise? Jerry. The young man, Chris Goodson, the one that had the reaction to the medicine, is coming around. He can move his eyes and he still can't talk, but they're weaning him off the ventilator. Okay. He's been in hospital almost three months. Okay. He's 59 years old. Yeah. <laughs> Steve. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm Yeah, it seemed, seemed to go off without a hitch, praise the Lord. Beverly. Amen. Wow. 
Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, anyone else? Word of praise. Anyone else? You have a rather lengthy prayer list that's going on at the present time. Uh, talk about lengthy hospital stays. Laney, uh, the friend of Anthony's that we have been praying for, um, she's, still, she's still struggling, has a long, long way to go. So let me encourage you, please be faithful in lifting her up uh, in prayer. Um, but, you know, let me share with you my, my word of praise. Um, Anthony. Wow, what a friend. Uh, he has befriended uh, Laney, and he has befriended the family, and uh, he has really gone beyond the call of, of, of duty. And uh, I just think it's remarkable, uh, his willingness to do what he's doing. Um, I mention that uh, because I was speaking to him this morning, and he's tired. He is really tired. He has taken a lot on his shoulders. And so, if you would, remember Anthony as you pray for Laney, because Anthony has been there, and I mean, he is, he's doing everything uh, that he can do to help the entire situation. So remember uh, Anthony in prayer as you remember the other prayer request. All right, are there any other names that need to be mentioned that we may not have covered thus far? Any new names? Any new names? Yes, Ron. Hollis Harris, friend of mine. Hollis Harris, okay. All right, anyone else? Anyone? Yes, Judy. Okay. All right. Did you get that, Miss Peavy? Okay. All right. Any other names? Yes, Mary. One of my former students, Janine. They're going through a divorce right now. Mm -hmm. She's got two daughters. Okay. And the name? Janine. Janine. Okay. How many more days? Forty. Ah. <laughs> but you're not counting. I am counting. Oh, you are counting. <laughs> <laughs> I have to take more money. Boy, <laughs> not that she's noticing anything, you know. <laughs> We're all counting. All right. All right. Any other names? Any other names that need to be mentioned? All right. How many of you have unspoken prayer requests? Let me see hands. All right. All over the house. Again, we want to pray for those who have asked for prayer. Uh, you hear the names. You see the hands that are raised. Uh, we're praying for salvations, for uh, people that we know, some are friends, others are family members. Let me just encourage you to be faithful in lifting them up in prayer because the time may come when it's your name on that prayer list and you'd want somebody praying for you, would you not? So while you are praying for them, be faithful because one day it might be asking them to pray for you. God's good. Amen? Amen. All right. You ready to sing again? Go a little slower this time. Okay? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> oh, well. Throw in another verse. I was going to till I saw you running down. 
Oh, yeah. So, so you made me run for nothing. It was funny. Pretty much. <laughs> By the time you did something, you got some exercise. Ooh. Ooh. Time for you to leave the music. <laughs> Stand with me, please. This is our offertory. Page 581. We'll do the first and the last verse. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day we've had today, Heavenly Father. And dear God, we just ask you, be with us as all this crowd is leaving and coming upon the island, Heavenly Father, and keep everybody safe. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all you do for us and for all the many blessings. And Heavenly Father, we just ask, dear God, that maybe, just maybe, we can get strong enough ourselves to carry your word all over. Jesus, we ask that you bless us again. Take care of us. Bless our families. Bless those who are missing tonight and missing this morning. Bring them back, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Tonight we're turning in our Bibles once again to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. If this study has done anything, it has caused many to do a lot of thinking and 
to begin to do some research on their own. And let me tell you something. That is the challenge that I enjoy giving to you, my people. I never want you to believe anything because I say it. But I say things sometimes in a rather strange way for the sake of getting you, number one, to think, and number two, to begin asking questions. That's how we learn, by asking questions. Remember sitting in school, teacher would say something, really wasn't clear in your mind as to what was being said, and in the back of your mind you're thinking, oh, if I ask this question, it might be stupid. And so what did you do? You sat there and didn't ask your question. There is no stupid question. We learn by asking questions. Now, I want to pause for just a moment and do something a little different. Because we are looking at a rather controversial subject matter, the matter of creation, or as others would put it, our origin. Because there are different ways of looking at this subject. I would like to give you some information, some uh, suggested reading, if you really want to pursue beyond what I have the opportunity to even cover. And so I want to give you a suggested reading list. One book that is just an incredible book is a book by Edward J. Young. He has written a book entitled Studies in Genesis 1. Now if you know anything about E.J. Young, you know that he is probably one of the most noted Greek scholars very, very brilliant man. That book is a rather older book, but it is well worth getting that book and reading. Now, that's not the kind of book that you're going to sit down and read like you would a novel. You're going to have to read a little bit, close it, think about it, pray over it, then go back and read a little bit more. That's the kind of book the studies in Genesis 1 is. Another book that I would highly recommend is a book by Arthur C. Custance. He has written a book entitled Without Form and Void. Without Form and Void. One of the classic books on the subject of origins and creation is a book written by G. H. Pember. And he wrote a book entitled, Earth's Earliest Ages. And in that book, as all these books that I'm suggesting, they give a clear 
presentation of what I am presenting to you. And uh, they build on some really tremendous insights, okay? And then, probably, of the four books that I placed before you, the one that I would highly recommend is a newer work by Jack W. Langford. Jack W. Langford, and he has written a book entitled, The Gap is Not a Theory. The Gap is Not a Theory. And so when you come to Genesis 1, 1, 2, and 3, you will find among conservative evangelical believers that there are essentially two camps. Camp number one is what is normally presented in the average church today. Um, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. There are those who see no gap whatsoever in Genesis 1, 1, and Genesis 1, 2. An example of this is the way that the um, Torah of uh, the Jews, the traditional uh, Hebrew text, how it has been translated uh, in your mainstream uh, Jewish congregations. Now, when you talk about Jewish congregations, you've got to kind of say which congregation you're talking about, because there are three. There are three. Uh, you have the Orthodox, traditional, and then you have your liberal, as uh, most every denomination has. You know, when you say Baptist, you have to designate what kind of Baptist? Are you talking about Southern Baptist? Are you talking about American Baptist? Are you talking about Independent Baptist? Are you just talking about Mean Baptist? <laughs> you know, so you have to kind of be specific as, as to which group you're talking about. Uh, but uh, in their translation, the new JPS translation of the Holy Scriptures, this is how they have translated and present Genesis 1, 1 and 2. And I'm reading from their book. When God began to create heaven and earth, the earth being unformed and void, with darkness over the face of the deep, and a wind from God sweeping over the water, God said, let there be light. So note, if you will, there... Uh, approach is that you begin with verse 1, but it continues on and it is a part of verse 2. So the traditional presentation is that Genesis 1-2 is just a description of what has begun in Genesis 1.1. And even in the traditional Baptist church, that would be the way that this particular passage of Scripture is taught. That is the majority view. When God began creating the heaven and the earth, He started with this condition that is described in verse 2. 
So that is not just the traditional view, but it is the view of what is known as young earth advocates today among evangelical believers. Now what I am presenting to you is the other side. I'm not presenting to you the traditional side. I'm presenting to you the non-traditional side. And it's not really that non-traditional, especially when you start doing some research. That's why I gave you this reading list. If you were to get any one of these books and start studying, you'll find out that the presentation that I'm setting before you uh, certainly did not begin with the Schofield Bible, and it didn't begin with uh, Dr. Thomas Chalmers as the other side would have one believe. There's a lot more to it. And so I'm presenting to you, hopefully, both sides. If you've been in a Baptist church any length of time, you have heard the traditional side. What you have not heard is the other side. And that's why I am presenting to you the other side and giving you at least all the information so that as you pray and as you do your own research that you can come to your own conclusion and coming to your own conclusion you can articulate what you believe and more importantly why you believe a certain thing a certain way. I, I kind of get frustrated. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, people think that Premillennial theology did not come into existence until it was popularized by the Schofield Bible. And, and, and they'll go back uh, to an uh, English preacher by the name of John Darby. It's as though these men created uh, the premillennial uh, approach to the scriptures. When we talk about premillennial, uh, pre uh, tribulational, we're talking about those who believe that Jesus Christ will rapture the church before the tribulation. With the church being raptured before the tribulation, that means that the church will not be going through the tribulation and that the church will not reappear on earth until Jesus returns to set up the millennial kingdom. In other words, in premillennial theology, what you do is you take the Bible literally. Literally. Now, the opposite of the premillennial position would be the amillennial position. That there really isn't a literal coming kingdom. That the kingdom that the Lord is establishing on earth is, is simply in the hearts of those who believe. And then the end will come and it'll all be over. And the righteous will live with God and the unrighteous. Um, we're not sure where they go anymore. That, that, that pretty much is, is getting to be the argument. And, and, and so you, you can see that when you talk about premillennial theology versus amillennial theology, you're talking about whether or not you're willing to accept the Bible literally or add to it a more naturalistic approach. That's the same way when you talk about studying creation. The traditional view is that 
there is a natural explanation and that's all there is to it. But I, on the other hand, am more comfortable with the supernatural than I am with the natural explanation. This morning I gave you an example of that. Matter of fact, this afternoon I went home, turned on TBN, listened to a preacher, and he was preaching on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was talking about the struggle that Jesus was having. It's a struggle just like you and I have. See, a natural explanation. In other words, somehow we can understand and we can acquaint ourselves with what Jesus was doing in the garden. Well, if all you see is a natural approach to the Garden of Gethsemane, that's your conclusion. But when you bring to the table the supernatural element, folks, you and I can't even begin to imagine the struggle of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Imagine Jesus when He begins to realize that He is about to go to the cross. And on His way to the cross, He's having to deal with the evil one. But as He goes to the cross, He knows why He's going there. He is going to bear the sins of all humanity for all time. Folks, there's no way, there's no way any of us can wrap our minds around that reality. So if you're trying to approach that event in the life of Jesus purely from a naturalistic perspective, you're going to miss the true significance of what that event is all about. But that is what happens. Most Bible teachers and even many Bible scholars, they like to lean more towards the natural explanation and kind of distance themselves from the supernatural. Let me give you another example. Genesis 6. Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, if you do not believe that the sons of God were angels who cohabitated with women and their offspring were the Nephilim, the giants... If you don't believe in that, then you choose to believe in what is known as a Sethite. In other words, you have, the, you have the godly people marrying the ungodly people. Now that's a natural explanation of which there are a million holes in the Sethite uh, position. But it's easier to embrace the natural perspective than it is the supernatural. Why? Because we like Pat answers. Have you not picked up on that? People like simple answers to complex issues. And there are some things in the Bible there are no simple answers for. We talked about the fact, three hours of darkness. We know what's happening, but there's nobody that can tell you how it's happening. We know the what, we just don't know the how. Again, there's that supernatural element. And for me, I had to settle personally that I would be comfortable with the supernatural element of the Scriptures and not just be satisfied with a simple naturalistic approach to the study of Scriptures. 
I personally am challenged by and enjoy and am encouraged and enlarged by recognizing the mystery element in God's Word. Is not Jesus himself a mystery? I mean, what about his life wasn't supernatural? But yet we take all the things connected with the works of God and what do we do? We want to give a natural explanation. It is the easiest way to go. I know that. It, 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 it's, it's more acceptable in the minds of people. It's easier to grasp. But then when you come along and you start looking at what has been traditionally said about certain subjects, and you start asking questions. That's when either you're going to find that what you believe is satisfying to where you are, or you're going to find that you're not satisfied. I've never been satisfied. When I get into Genesis 1, 1, 2, and 3, I've never been satisfied with verse 2, attributing whatever that condition is to the creative power of God. And that's what really I'm trying to set before us. Is there possibly something more that if we'll just spend a little time and ask some questions, we can open up this discussion and make it a little more broader and a little bit more insightful. So, I've given you an example from the Jewish Tanakh. When God was in the process of creating heaven and earth, earth starts out in this formless, empty condition. Now, let me read to you from Genesis 1, 1, and 2. But now I'm going to read from what is known as the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So when you talk about the translations of the Bible, you've got to remember the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and a couple of chapters are written in Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Greek. The Greek New Testament in the 3rd century would be translated from Hebrew to Greek. It's known as the Septuagint, the 70. And then the Septuagint, being translated from Hebrew to Greek, would eventually be translated into Latin. Latin. And the Bible would remain in Latin, thus it would pretty much be a book that would be locked away from the common people because Latin was the language of the, uh, the academics, the intellects, and the common people, you know, they couldn't even read or write their own name, much less read and write Latin. So it was the church-authorized version, the Latin Vulgate, starting with Jerome. And uh, Jerome took some liberties and, 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 and when you are able to compare the Latin Vulgate with the Greek Septuagint, you can see that there are some liberties and some uh, words that could have gone 
one of two ways. But you've got to remember, this is the official translation for the church. So you kind of see which direction things were moved toward. Now, all that really started changing when guys like uh, John Huss comes along, John Wycliffe comes along, the Tyndale uh, translation. Now do you see why the, the, the church started burning the guys that wanted to put the Bible in the language of the people? Luther put the Bible in the uh, German language? The church wasn't happy with that. Now, you have to ask yourself the question, why? You know, if, 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 if you're in the church, why don't you want the people to have a Bible? You need to have a Bible. That way you don't have to take the word of any man. You can read it yourself. But let me read from the Septuagint. And I'm reading from Genesis 1, beginning verse 1. In the beginning God made the heaven and the earth. But, it's interesting, but the earth was unsightly and unfurnished, and darkness was over the deep, and the Spirit of God moved over the water. And God said, let there be light. So, looking at this passage of Scripture, there are two questions that are always raised. Question number one, how did it all begin? That's the first question. That's a legitimate question, would you not agree? But the second question is this, and this is where it gets interesting. The second question is, when did it all begin? When? So we move from how to when. Now, as Bible-believing Christians, we can answer the first question rather easily. How did it all begin? Well, the answer is, God did it. And that's the thing, both sides, both camps, whether you're looking at the traditional way that Genesis 1, 1 through 3 is handled or the non-traditional way, the one thing that both sides agree on is that God is the Creator God. God is the Creator God. In the beginning, God created. Now, talk about controversy, you get into a controversy just by looking at the word created. You don't have to get too far in before questions start coming to the top. When the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the word is barar, B-A-R-A. Now, there is agreement, both camps, that the word denotes to create something out of nothing. To create something out of nothing. Now, 
you don't want to leave that definition right there. Even though it is a correct definition. In the beginning, God created. Whatever came into existence, it came from nothing. That's faith. Would you not agree? Now, if you're trying to look at this through a scientific, naturalistic perspective, you've got to look elsewhere. And those who look elsewhere will look towards evolution. And there is a camp that is known as theistic evolutionist. In other words, they believe that God is the author of creation, but he uses the evolutionary process to bring things into existence. And instead of a day being a day of evening and morning, day speaks of an age. And so that is how some have chosen to embrace both the biblical record with scientific research. Okay? I don't believe that. I believe with all my heart that in the beginning God created. He brought into existence out of nothing. But I would not leave it there. I would like to take it one step further. Now here's what I mean. God created the heavens and the earth. He brought something out of nothing. Now my question would be this. That's something that He brought out of nothing. Would it be a complete something or would it be a partial something? Now that's a mind bender. Now for those who just simply believe that verse 2 is a description referring back to verse 1, they've got to be willing to admit that the something that God starts with is a something that is not complete. Not only is it something that is not complete, but I mean, think about the description that is given of this something in verse 2. Note, if you will, it's buried in water, it's covered in darkness, and the Spirit is hovering over it. So, does this indicate that as he begins to create something out of nothing, he's got to have another try at it? Because the first something's not really coming out that good? It's interesting. Beyond verse 3, you're going to find that everything that he does Beyond verse 3, he will say this. It was what? It was good. Now, if he creates what is described in verse 2, are you with me? If we attribute to what is in verse 2 a part of his creation, 
Why doesn't even God pronounce it good? When everything else he's done, he pronounces it good. So, in the beginning, God created something out of nothing. What is the condition of that something? Well, if that is what is described in verse 2, I would submit that you have an act of incomplete creation. Therefore, it really would negate the definition of the word created. Because when you look at verse 1, verse 1 really is not connected to verse 2. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Period. That is not a description of God's creative work. That is a declaration of God's creative work. A declaration pointing to absolute creation which whatever it is that he has created was complete in its original state. Now, let's think about something for a moment. I love these mind benders. Again, I am not asking you to believe anything that I'm saying. I'm just opening up to you the other side. And so, this way, you'll have the presentation of both sides. The side that leans more to the naturalistic, whereas I'm presenting the side that leads more to the supernatural. Okay? Now, I want you to think about something. What does God own? Well, He owns verse 1. In the beginning, God created God's owning verse 1. Would you not agree? God's owning it. He's putting His stamp on it. That's mine. Okay? Look at verse 3. God owns verse 3. God said. God said. Now what is interesting is this. He doesn't seem to own verse 2. Verse 1, God created. He owns it. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. He owns it. But do you see that in verse 2? If indeed Genesis 1-1 is a standalone, independent statement, if that be the case, and practically all sides... All sides, practically, will hold to that fact that verse 1 is an independent declaration, a fact of absolute creation. If that be the case, then you've got to admit verse 2 stands out like a sore thumb. God puts His approval on verse 1, He puts His approval on verse 3, but where is it to be found? Verse 2. Okay? Let's take it a step further. Isn't this fun? 
God does not own the conditions that are described in verse 2. Now there are three passages of Scripture that I'd like for us to look at. Isaiah 45, Jeremiah 4, and Psalm 18. Psalm 18. Now again, note if you will, the description of the earth in verse 2. It is an earth without form and void. And note if you will, the word darkness. The word darkness. Now I'll be honest with you. My mind started turning away from the traditional view in my freshman year at Bob Jones University. Now if you want to hear the traditional view, go to Bob Jones University, you will hear the traditional view. As well as most other Bible colleges. When I came to that word darkness, that word bothered me more than anything. It really did. That word just stuck in my crawl. God starts with darkness. He starts with a world covered in water, shrouded in darkness. Now think for a moment, does that even indicate the character of God? Especially when... The Bible is very clear, whether it be the Old Testament or New Testament, God is a God of light. He is light. And, and, and please don't confuse this. In verse 3, when he says, let there be light, he is not talking about natural light. Natural light doesn't come until day 4 with the sun, moon, and stars. So when you compare verse 3... Day one, with day four, you move from supernatural light, and that's what it is when he says, let there be light. That's supernatural light. And what is that supernatural light? It's him. It's him. You don't get more supernatural light than him. Amen? Okay. And then natural light doesn't come into play until day four with the sun, moon, and the stars. So, I'm looking at a situation where I'm looking at supernatural light versus natural light. Are you with me? Now, when I see that word darkness, I've got to ask myself the question, is this just simply natural darkness? Or is this supernatural darkness? Now don't you think that that is a fair question to ask? Talk to me. Don't, don't you think, based upon looking at light, verse 3, supernatural light. Fourth day, natural light. So, so you have supernatural and you have natural. Okay, when you read the word darkness in verse 2, don't you think it's fair to ask the question, supernatural darkness or natural darkness? So asking that question, you've got to look at the word darkness that is used. Let me show you something. And I think that you will find this interesting. 
The earth is destroyed, are, are described as being empty, void, and wasted. It's covered in water, shrouded in darkness. Now, the word for darkness, there's the Hebrew word. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because I don't speak Hebrew. Koshek is how it is pronounced on the Hebrew dictionary that I use in my office. Kosek or Kochek, okay? And the interesting thing is, this is an unnatural darkness. Now, to understand the concept of unnatural darkness, let me give you two examples. The first you will find in Exodus chapter 10. When you go to Exodus chapter 10, you're looking at the context of God plaguing Egypt. And one of the plagues of Egypt was an unnatural, or what we could call a supernatural darkness. A darkness that was so dark it was literally felt. Go back and read it. That wasn't a natural darkness. That was a supernatural darkness. So you had the example of Exodus chapter 10. Then you come over into the New Testament. Matthew 27. Remember Jesus on the cross? Three hours of what? Darkness. Natural or supernatural? Yeah. That wasn't natural. That was supernatural. That's the word. The word that is used here in Genesis 1-2 is the word that points to not a natural darkness, but an unnatural or supernatural darkness. And this word in the Hebrew is a word that is associated with the idea of misery, destruction, death, sorrow, wickedness. Now, do you think God owns those things? You see, you just simply ask the question concerning this one word, darkness, and it leads you to some rather interesting conclusions. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and He did it starting with darkness. And not a natural darkness, but a supernatural darkness. It just doesn't make sense. With what the Bible tells us about the very nature of God Himself, it doesn't make sense. In other words, the Creator is creating contrary to His character. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Can God do anything apart from His own character? For example... God is truth. Jesus puts it this way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. Now, God is the truth. Let's ask a question. If God be in the truth, can He lie? Can He lie? Well, 
The Bible answers that question for us. For it is impossible for God to lie. Why? Because His character is truth. And He cannot go outside of His character. And I would submit, looking at verse 2, that if this is a part of God's original creation brought back to verse 1, then God has started His creative work in direct opposition to His own character. And I don't see how that is possible. So look at the words that are associated with this. Misery. Destruction. Death. Sorrow. Wickedness. All of these words you would not and cannot associate with the character of God. Now here's another issue. And with this I'm going to end tonight. Consider the principle of 1 Corinthians 14.33. God is not the author of confusion. What kind of picture do you have in Genesis 1-2? Do you have a picture of calm and beauty and order? No, you got a mess. That's why the ancients referred to it as chaos. I showed you the eight frames of the Haggadah. And, and, and the first frame is chaos. Then from chaos, then you would have day one, two, three, four, five, six, and then seven. Given a total of eight frames. The point is, the ancients believed that it all started out of chaos. Now is God the author of confusion? Is He the author of Chaos? I would find that difficult to believe. I really would. And so, you, you look at the word for darkness. It's unnatural darkness. You look at the condition of the earth that is described is without form and void. It's tohu bohu. We'll look at that in our next session. But again, though we are accustomed to hearing the traditional side to this story, I think the other side warrants at least a hearing. And the reason why I'm presenting the other side is that chances are you will never hear it. Because quite easily the traditional, more naturalistic presentation of the storyline is less controversial and it doesn't raise questions. But I'm just built a little different. I love to stir the pot. I love to get you thinking. I love to have you come back and say, well, preacher, I want to ask you about this. And, and I've already had that, and I love it. That means we're learning together. That doesn't mean that you are agreeing 
with what the preacher says because the preacher says it. But it means that you're learning. It means you're thinking. It means that you're putting yourself in a position where the Spirit of God can guide you and teach you. And that's what it's all about. Amen? Let's stand. Thank you for being here tonight. We will come back and we will look more closely at some passages of Scripture that relate to the conditions that are described in verse 2. We'll look at Isaiah, we'll look at Jeremiah, we'll look at two passages in Psalms. And I think that you will find these uh, passages uh, intriguing. Intriguing. And uh, you'll have some information uh, that, that, that you can begin doing your own research. And that's what I hope that you're doing. I hope that you're going home and, and, and getting into the Scriptures and going over these things with me, uh, not for the purpose of agreeing, but the purpose of learning. The purpose of learning. You know as well as I did, um, especially if you went to any school of higher education, you had teachers that you were with them and you had teachers that you weren't. Matter of fact, let, let, me, let me share this with you. I just got an email just before the service tonight. A pastor out of Athens, Georgia, he writes me and he tells me that he was one of my students some 13, 14 years ago. He tells me it was the subject of eschatology and I am premillennial, and I make no, no bones about it. He tells me in the email, well, I'm not, I'm all millennial, but I would like to ask you, Dr. Loeffner, do you debate? <laughs> so, so according to his initial email, is he is wanting to know uh, if I would be willing to go to Athens and debate premillennial theology versus amillennial theology. So I'll be contacting him back and saying, bring it on. <laughs> so, so here's one of my students that I had uh, a, a, in, in seminary. And uh, I, I guess I, I wasn't good enough at that time to persuade him. But I'm going to come back and see if I can persuade him again. Okay? But again, the amillennial view is the dominant view. The same way as the naturalistic presentation of Genesis 1, 1 through 3 is the dominant view. I'm not sharing with you the dominant view, the mainline view. I'm sharing with you another view, giving you another side, giving you a little bit more information so that at least when you talk about this subject, you've got both sides covered. Amen? That's what it's all about. Brother Jerry, would you please dismiss the word prayer, Brother Jerry? All right, Father, thank you. Jesus' name we